The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray that your grace may always proceed and follow after us, that we may continually be given to good works through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated for our readings. The Old Testament reading is from Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring a servant, my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you who will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. A New Testament reading from the book of Hebrews. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. 
lest someone who is more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give up your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you, your, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We do open our hearts uh, to you, Lord. We um, open them to you knowing that you are good, you are trustworthy, that you are for us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue uh, to, to grow us and to teach us um, through your word, through the work of your spirit. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Be seated. All right. So um, I'm hoping we have some ready to draw out there. Um, uh, I won't make you raise your hands, but I'm going to give you a drawing pump no matter what. Um, uh, And uh, hopefully um, that can be a way, again, kids, you can engage a little bit with the service if that's a way you like to engage creatively. Um, So uh, two possibilities here for the drawing prompt. So you can choose which one, or you can do both maybe if you're an advanced uh, child. Um, uh, But one um, is a simple drawing prompt, um, but one that can be fun to draw, which is draw an angel. Uh, We have a vision that we're going to be looking at from the book of Zechariah that involves the angel of the Lord. So you can draw an angel if you want. Keep in mind, kids, if you are drawing an angel, keep in mind that when angels appear to people in the scriptures, there's something that almost every time, not every time, but almost every time the angel has to say when um, uh, he appears to someone. Anyone know what that is? Don't be afraid. Right? And so I'm not saying draw a scary angel. Don't do that. But I am saying angels are so awe-inspiring. They're so awesome and powerful that when they appear to people, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. So keep that in mind as you draw um, an angel. Uh, the second thing, if you're like, ah, angels, um, I mean, you shouldn't say that. Angels are awesome. But if you're not excited about drawing an angel, the second one is draw a courtroom. Uh, uh, we're going to look at a reading that in a sense takes place in a divine courtroom. Um, And so you can draw a judge, you can draw lawyers, you can draw a jury, but maybe if you have in your mind, what would this divine courtroom look like? All right, so that's drawing prompts. Go for it. If you want to share them afterwards, if you do draw, I would love to see them. You can take a picture and um, uh, share it with me. Uh, The book um, Catch-22 was a book written in 1961 by uh, Joseph Heller. Um, Sometimes I'll uh, reference certain works and say this is not an endorsement, but this one is an endorsement. I I love uh, that book. And obviously the term Catch-22 has become now a common term um, that, that people use. The way it comes out in the book initially, the book takes place during World War II, there's a character named Yossarian um, who is a part of um, bombing missions in World War II, um, and he goes to a psychiatrist, an army psychiatrist, 
um, because he's feeling so deathly afraid and so overwhelmed um, by fear and going on these bombing missions that he goes to the psychiatrist saying, because I'm experiencing such incredible fear, um, my mental health is being impaired can that perhaps get me out of going on more missions? He's hoping, in a sense, that the psychiatrist will give him uh, a pass on continuing on these missions. The psychiatrist actually, though, explains, look, the fact that you're terrified of going on these missions means you're in great mental health, uh, because you should be terrified of going on these missions. People are trying to kill you. So therefore, you cannot use your mental health as an excuse to get out of the bombing missions, because actually the fact that you want to get out of the bombing missions shows you have good mental health. I mean, he calls that a catch-22. Basically, the thing that you are hoping will get you out of the situation is actually the thing that keeps you in the situation. And there are numerous times in the book, again, it's both a hilarious and heartbreaking book at the same time, where catch-22 comes up. And again, that's become a common parlance. I mean, a classic example would be, I can't get a job because I don't have enough experience. I can't get experience because I can't get a job. All right? And so you find yourself, again, caught in these things. I want to consider basically today in our Zechariah reading that there's sort of a divine, sort of a spiritual catch-22 happening there, that Joshua, the priest, um, in this vision, finds himself in. And I want to consider how God, the Lord, breaks into that catch-22 and brings freedom and what that looks like for us in situations that perhaps we feel like we're in a catch-22 where we feel stuck, where we feel like we can't get out of something how the Lord, our great high priest Jesus, breaks in and brings freedom to us. And so before we look specifically at that passage, again, we've been in um, the Minor Prophets. We're coming near the end of the Minor Prophets series. Um, and just a few words about Zechariah. Zechariah is actually, along with Hosea, the longest of the Minor Prophets. Both are 14 um, chapters long, so quite a bit longer than many of the Minor Prophets that we've been looking at um, this summer. Um, Zechariah takes place um, at a similar time that Haggai, which we were in a couple weeks ago. Um, So um, Zechariah is a prophet um, in the nation of Judah at a time that um, people are coming back from the exile. So again, if you remember the the history, um, uh, for 70 years, uh, many of the um, people of the nation of Judah had been brought into exile in Babylon under the Babylonians. Um, The Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, and now the Persians are letting um, the people of Judah start to return. And so it's a time of great hope. Again, there's a returning to the promised land, but it's also a time of huge challenges as well. If you're here a couple weeks ago when we looked at Haggai, Joel talked about the fact that the temple is being rebuilt or should be rebuilt, um, and that had all sorts of challenges with it, right? That's both exciting, hooray, right? The temple's being rebuilt, but had a lot of grief with it and a lot of sort of what is the meaning even of rebuilding the temple. And so there's a lot going on. Um, The book of Zechariah can sort of be broken up into three parts. And the first part actually involves these visions, these dreams that are given uh, to Zechariah. There are eight of them. There's kind of a ninth one um, at the end um, that speak to the current situation, both the current situation in Judah, but also sort of a vision of what's happening in the world and how God's at work in the world. After these visions, then there's a section basically where Zechariah is speaking to the people of Judah and basically saying, don't make the same mistake your forefathers made. Right? You're coming back into the promised land. Right? But don't fall into complacency like they did. Don't fall into idolatry like they did, or you'll be back out again. Right? I mean, the Lord has brought you back. Celebrate that. But now turn to him and do not turn away. So he warns them. Like, you could get lazy now that you're being brought back into the land. Don't let that happen. 
Right? And then the third section is these um, sort of series of pictures. Um, they're not really visions in the same way the earlier section is, but um, actually a couple um, commentators I read talked about it on those final chapters as sort of this kaleidoscope. We see these different pictures of God's future work in Judah, his work of judgment. So there's warning of judgment and what will happen if they uh, turn away from him, but also these beautiful promises of restoration. Basically, one word that's used again and again when you study the book of Zechariah, when I was studying it this week, is obscure. Um, Jerome, who's a great church father, brilliant, said, it is a most obscure book, which that was very comforting to me because Jerome was very smart. I'm like, okay, good, because I'm I'm overwhelmed. There are these visions that are strange, and then there's an explanation of the vision, and that's stranger than the vision itself um, as you read Zechariah. And so it's a challenging book. It's sort of the book of Revelation of the Minor Prophets. Um, But like the book of Revelation, it is worthwhile to get into. Even at times if you're reading it as I was and thinking, I have no idea what this means. It's kind of bizarre. Right there, again, it's God's word. And it's worth engaging and learning. So that's my encouragement to you. Just before we look at this passage from Zechariah 3, let me just give you a few verses from other parts that just capture sort of the beauty. And again, this kaleidoscope, these visions um, that you get um, in the book of Zechariah. Early on, the Lord says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, he's speaking to his people, he says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. I just love that, right? That, that is God, right? And this is the Old Testament, so any of you that think, oh, the Old Testament God was cold and unloving, no. He says to his people, if they touch you, you are the apple of my eye. Another um, vision that's given, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with a staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. This is another one. In those days, ten men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. And then these verses are actually at the very end of Zechariah. On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. So again, you get these pictures, right? Horse bells, right? Saying holy to the Lord, right? God's holiness infusing all things. And so my encouragement is spend some time in Zechariah, but be ready um, for the obscurity. Um, And embrace it and celebrate it. Um, So let's look again at this passage, um, this vision that's given to Zechariah. Um, uh, starting there in the beginning verses. And again, I, I want to actually look at two things in this vision, tying into, again, God, how God brings freedom when we're stuck. One is the way Joshua as a priest um, is a representative, but then the second, the way that Joshua as a priest is a sign, um, and the priest with him. So priest is representative, priest is a sign, all right? So in this obscure book, I'm going to try to keep um, it simple as we look at this passage, um, and again, what it speaks to us and how it speaks to us. And so um, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So again, as I said in the drawing prompt, this is basically a picture of a divine courtroom. This is the Lord on his throne uh, before um, the people. And we see, like in a courtroom, right there is an accusation um, that is being um, made. 
right? And Satan is actually making the accusation against Joshua. This is a vision from, that Zechariah has. Uh, but to be clear, Joshua, the high priest, was the high priest at that time. So he's a real person. He comes up in various parts um, in Zechariah. But again, here, he's seeing Joshua in this um, vision. Um, in the book, uh, or in the Psalm, Psalm 109, um, uh, the psalmist is speaking of an enemy. And he says to the enemy, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. All right, so that was sort of, you know, a thing. Like, it's really bad to have an accuser at your right hand. And basically, that's what Joshua has. An accuser, not just any accuser, but Satan, the accuser. That's what the name Satan means, enemy or accuser. And so Joshua is being accused, right? The, the accuser is at his right hand, right next to him. But then, later in that Psalm 109, at the end, it says this. For he, the Lord, stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. All right, and so we both see, right, Satan the accuser at Joshua's right hand, but then we see the Lord, right, intervening. The Lord rebuke you, right? We have the, the angel of the Lord, who's also kind of the Lord. Um, again, uh, the angel of the Lord shows up many times in the, the Old Testament as one who so represents God um, that he's often spoke of as the Lord. And so you see that here, right, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? All right, so there's a, a, a rebuke against the rebuker. There's an accusation against the accuser. And verse 3 then tells us, very importantly, now Joshua standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. All right, so this is where we get sort of that catch 22. Joshua is a high priest, right? He has been called to be the high priest for the people as they're returning back to Jerusalem and returning back to Judah, as they are rebuilding the temple. But he himself needs cleansing, right? His garments, right, are covered um, with filth. Uh, that's not meaning, you know, he just needs to wash his garments, right? That's a clear sign of his own sinfulness. But how can Joshua become clean? Well, the rules of that time were, the expectation of that time is, how do you become clean? You go to the temple and you receive cleansing from a priest, right? There's a ritual you go to, through to be cleansed. But he's the priest, right? He's the high priest, and there are no other priests. I mean, the other priests, they have dirty garments as well, right? They've been in captivity for 70 years. They've been away from the worship of the people, so they're all unclean. So how do you receive cleansing from a priest when you're the priest who needs cleansing? Right? That's the catch-22, right? How, how he's stuck, right? He, he needs to be cleansed. The accuser actually has good reason to accuse him. You are dirty. You are sinful. And what does he do? Right, the Lord, again, intervenes. The Lord rebukes Satan and then um, offers uh, the cleansing. Remove the fil filthy garments from him, verse 4. And to him, he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I'll clothe you with pure vestments. And I love this. And then Zechariah, he's in the vision, but he speaks up, right? And he says, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head, right? He sees, Hey, if you're giving him new vestments, make sure you give him a turban. Make sure his head is covered. That's an extremely important symbol uh, for the priests, and they're coming into the holy place. All right, so like I said, as we look at this, let's consider the priest as a representative. That is one of the key roles that the priest plays. Right, keep in mind that when the Lord spoke to his people, right, when he was establishing his people, one thing he said to all the people of Israel is, you are a kingdom of priests. And so he was saying to the entire people, you all are priests. You all right, represent me to the world, right? And I speak um, through you to the world. And so he called all the people priests, but then the Lord clearly set aside some for the office of priests, for that role of priests. 
right? And so if everyone is considered a priest, but some are in the office of priests, and clearly those in the office of priests are representing the people. In their role, they're specifically standing in for the people. Now, for us as Anglicans, where we have the office of priests, different from an Old Testament priest, right? And that's true for other denominations, whether they call them pastors or other ministers, right? All the various names, right? There's the same dynamic um, there as well, right? I mean, um, as a priest, as a, a leader, there's a representative role, especially in our, our worship service, right? I mean, many of you are familiar with this. When we start the service and I say, the Lord be with you and also with you, there's a sense in which I'm saying... Maybe you didn't realize this. I hope you still respond with the Lord be with you. And I mean, I hope you still respond with also with you. In a sense, I'm saying, do I have your permission to lead? Right? Can I act as your representative for this service? And so now you know when you say also with you, you're saying, yes, you do. So and please keep saying that because um, uh, that's how it works in the liturgical service. And so there's a representative role. And actually the vestments, what the priest wears, speaks to that representative role. That's the reason, right, God gave all these vestments, right? I mean, maybe when you, again, you read book, Exodus, Leviticus, you've wondered, like, man, alive, why is so much time spent talking about all the details of the robes and all the things that they had to wear? Why, why so much information about that? Because those mean something, right? They're symbolic of, of representing, the, or the priest representing the people. So, for instance, let me read a section from Exodus that talks about um, a plate that was worn, actually, on the head, on the turban. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. So again, the turban was mentioned um, by Zechariah. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. Aaron was the high priest, um, uh, again, in Exodus. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So again, there's a lot going on there, but you hear that what, the, what Aaron is wearing on his forehead is ordered that the, all the people may be accepted for the Lord. He's coming as their representative, right? That's his act, again, as a priest representing the kingdom of priests. Later it says this, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in his breastplate of judgment on his heart. So isn't that beautiful? In this breastplate that he would wear, the names of the sons of Israel, so basically he's representing the representatives, the sons of Israel, or the people of God, and it's right over his heart as he comes before, right? bringing them really to God and bringing them before God's heart. So that's, again, a role and, again, similar thing, right? Why do we wear vestments? And different traditions don't, different traditions do. But the reason, right, we wear these vestments is not because this is a way to make sure you know I'm holier than you, so don't argue with me because I got the robe on, right? No, right? It's a sign that all of us um, are made holy in the Lord. Right? Again, in the book of Revelation, we have that beautiful picture of white robes being put on the people of God to show that they have a holiness that comes from the Lord. And in this time that we worship together, um, the wearing of vestments represents that reality that all of us share. And so when we read about the, re- the vestments being filthy, right, that's, again, Joshua there is actually representing the sinfulness of the people, right? his own sinfulness, but all the people, right, that he would have these filthy garments. Right? And when the Lord, um, at the beginning, says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, right? he's rebuking Satan for um, accusing Joshua, but he's rebuking Satan for accusing all of the nation, all the people of God. Right? The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord has pulled um, the people of God out of the fire. Right? He has brought them back into the promised land. And so this is, again, a picture of what does it mean to be caught in a situation where we feel like, how do I get cleansed, right? When I myself am so dirty, who's going to cleanse me? Everyone around me is dirty. How do I get cleansed? 
Right? We ourselves can be in that situation. And the vision here is the Lord intervenes. Right? The Lord says, you know, I can break into the catch-22 and bring cleansing. I can put new garments on you. And that's a picture for what we receive um, in the Lord and all that we receive. I just, as we consider this, I encourage you, um, and maybe this is not something you want to think about, but I think it's worth thinking about. Where do you hear the voice of the accuser? Right? Where at times do you feel like Joshua, where it's like the accuser is right there at your right hand, and he is speaking into your mind, into your ears, right, those words of accusation? Right? What does that feel like for you? What, what sort of you know, words of you're stuck? Right? You will never get out, right? Who's going to cleanse you, right? You're covered. This is your identity, this dirty robe. In what ways, right, do we need to read this and take to heart? This is a representation of us, that just as Joshua is cleansed there, right, just as Zechariah can speak up and put, put a turban on his head, right, make sure his whole body is covered with the cleansing reality, that that's a word for us, that we can receive, right, that we um, can see ourselves in this. And so we have the priest as a representative there, but then we have the priest as a sign uh, uh, that we see here in this second um, passage. So I've shared this story before, but I think it's been long enough that I can share it again. I didn't run it by my wife. She's usually the one that tells me. It's like, no, 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 it's been, it's been long enough. Everyone's heard this story, but I'll try it um, and see. Uh, but when I was in college, I lived in a, a house um, called Miller Manor for a couple years. Um, uh, there was a number of us that, that lived in, in this house, women on one floor, uh, men on the other floor. Um, and there was a um, lounge, uh, the Miller Manor Lounge. And we spent a lot of time hanging out in the lounge. Um, and one of my friends once took a picture of the Miller Manor Lounge um, and then put it up in the Miller Manor Lounge um, with the, underneath it, it said, the Miller Manor Lounge. Um, and it didn't have any people in it, so it was just a picture of the lounge that she hung up then in the lounge. I'm glad you all laughed. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was so funny, because of course it's absurd to have like a sign of the lounge in the lounge, right? You don't need to know what the lounge looks like because you're in the lounge, but if someone, right, was saying, you know, had said to me, hey, I'm moving to Miller Manor next year, um, can you give me a picture of the lounge so I know what the lounge looks like, then it would make sense for me to give them that picture. Then it would be a meaningful sign, right? But the sign's only meaningful, right, if it's speaking to something, right, that you haven't yet experienced, right? If you're driving down the, the street and you go over a bump and then you see a sign that says you just went over a bump, that's not helpful, <laughs> right? But if you see a sign that says a bump is coming, you know this is coming. And so when it says... If you look down at verse 8, here now, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends, that's talking about the fellow priests who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. That is saying, you as priests, you point forward to something that's not yet fully seen. You're actually saying, here's something that's coming. Right? In your very role, in your office, you are sharing something about the future. Right? And spoiler alert, that's Jesus. Right? They are a sign of the great high priest, of the one who will come and be a priest in the way that they are unable to be priests, that they in their weakness and their frailty cannot fulfill, right? because they too need to be cleansed, as the first passage shows us. Right? They are so representative of the people because they share the sinfulness of the people. And so we see then verse 6, if we go back, kind of keeping in mind this is all about the priest as a sign, right? thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, and you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. So it's a call to the priest to be obedient, 
right? Yes, you are frail and sinful as the people are, but you are called to an obedience, right? You are called um, to, to follow me and to turn away from sin, to live lives of repentance, and you are called to rule, right? And so the priests are not just in a role of organizing the worship, although that's what they did. There's a leadership role there. There's a, a ruling role. You shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, right? And I will give you the right of access, Basically, that's saying you will be able to come into the holy place. You'll be able to come into my very throne room, right, which is what Joshua is experiencing in this vision. So all these things are, are promises to the priest. Interestingly enough, one thing that's really strong in the book of Zechariah is the, the priest, Joshua, shows up again and again, and Zerubbabel, who's basically, he's sort of like the king, he's sort of like the leader now of the people that are returning, right? He's in the line of David shows up again and again, and Joshua and Zerubbabel are often put close together, right? Clearly, a priest and a king. And so there's a real sense in Zechariah that's looking forward to, they are signs of a coming one who will be both priest and king, right? And this is all within the prophet. So it points forward to a coming prophet as well. And so we see here, right, to the priest, you're supposed to be obedient, you're supposed to rule, you're supposed to bring people into the holy place, right, as representing them to come into the very holy place. And all that we can say, they could do that, but they could only do it faultily, right? They could never do it perfectly, right? Their rule is always going to be tainted by their own sin and by their own limitations, right? Yes, once a year they can come into the holy place, but even then they have to receive all sorts of covering um, to even come into the holy place in the temple, right? And how um, uh, are they then to perfectly represent um, the people who they serve? And so... The Lord says, you are to be a sign. And then look at the end of verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Who is the branch? Right? It's Jesus. Uh, Jeremiah, um, in the book of Jeremiah, there are actually a couple of prophecies about the branch. I'll read one of them from Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The Lord is saying to those priests, I put a calling on you, but you are going to need the help of another one because you are limited. And that other one is my servant, the branch, the one who will execute justice and righteous, who's in the line of David. As we think about this, right, and we think about those filthy garments being removed, the amazing truth we know, right, is that the branch came and actually removed our garments through putting them on himself. Right, and basically took our sinful garments, even though he was without sin, upon himself. And again, went right in the sense to the holy place, bearing our sin and paying for our sin. And rose again, right, with clean garments, right, rose again with the sin being taken care of and paid for, and gave us those clean garments, promising us resurrection. And so that's the sign right here that we see. And we go on, behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone, with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, its inscription declares the Lord of hosts. Here we get into some of the obscurity. Um, what is this stone? Why does it have seven eyes? The stone probably actually represents like a stone that would have been put in the turban. So again, ties into Exodus and all the vision of the vestments and you know, precious stones being put in the vestments. The seven eyes, seven is a number that represents um, perfection and completeness. Right, many believe right, that's just speaking to the Lord's vision over all things, that the, the Lord sees everything. Significantly enough, um, in the breastplate um, was, was carved, was inscribed, holy to the Lord, which is seven Hebrew um, letters. Um, and so um, the number seven seems significant in that way. 
Interestingly also, and again, sorry if I'm getting a little bit in the weeds here, but for those of you that find these things interesting, that um, word eyes can also be translated fountains. I mean, so some debate, you know, is it eyes or fountains? Some would say, well, you know, let's take both meanings there. When we think of a stone with fountains, right, it recalls the book of Exodus again, and the stone, right, that Moses hit um, and that water came out of. And when we go into the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, right, um, uh, Paul says, uh, of that stone, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So there seems to be even here a vision, right, of the Lord as this fountain that continues to give life. Whatever the case, right, the stone is tied into the renewal of nature, the renewal of the earth. I will, re- I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And so if we need any more evidence, right, that the, the priesthood of Joshua and others around him was a sign forward, right, is that the coming priest to come will actually renew the land. He'll bring forgiveness, he'll bring mercy, but he will bring new creation. And that day, declares the Lord, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So again, as we've considered, what is the words of accusation perhaps that we hear? What are the places where we feel like I'm stuck? That we remember there is a way out, and the way out is the great high priest, the priest who um, we see as a sign here in the Old Testament scriptures, who we see in his full realization, right, in the New Testament, that he is the one who breaks us out. He is worthy to set us free. Let me just end um, with uh, uh, another passage from the book of Hebrews. We had a passage earlier. But just hear this as a promise. Hear this as a promise for freedom and for rescue. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are a great high priest. We thank you, Lord, that when we are stuck in our sins, that you rescue us. You set us free and you clothe us with clean garments. Lord, I pray for any here today who are feeling accused, who are feeling stuck, I pray, Jesus, that you would give them a clear vision of who you are and the work you have done on their behalf, that they even now would see themselves clothed with that white robe, with perhaps a white turban on their heads, just showing their holiness and their full belonging to you. We ask for this and we pray for this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's stand.